One day I was out flying Wave in a rental ship, you know, no electronic anything, so it was basically a stealth uh, glider. And uh, coming back around 10,000 feet, you know, boom, under me comes this uh, marine osprey. You know, I had no idea if you saw me or not, but it was like, holy smokes, that could have been bad. Welcome to Soaring the Sky, a glider pilot's podcast. My name is Chuck. I'm your host, coming to you from the Mid-Atlantic region here in the United States and flying with the Cumberland Soaring Group. This is episode 88. Some of you have been with us this entire journey, and some may be just tuning in. Thank you so much for being here. We have another exciting episode to share with you, but first, if you haven't already, please go ahead and hit that subscribe button so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes. It also helps to grow our soaring community. If you really want to help grow the podcast, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. And a big thank you to our newest Patreon pilot, Thomas Lyon. Thank you so much for contributing to the podcast. We greatly appreciate it. Also, a big thank you to all of our Patreon pilots who continue to support the podcast so we can grow and keep bringing you great soaring content from all over the globe. If you would like to support us financially, you can do that by going to patreon.com slash soaring the sky. We do have some benefits for our Patreon pilots. Just one of the benefits is getting sneak peeks of upcoming guests and content that we will be featuring on the show. You hear about it before anyone else. If you don't want to use Patreon, but you still would like to contribute to the show, you can do that by going to our website and hitting the support the show button where you will see some other options there as well. This episode is sponsored by the Southern California Soaring Academy, a 501c3 nonprofit organization located in the high desert of Los Angeles, California. Soaring Academy is dedicated to growing the sport of soaring with young people through its 8th grade STEM outreach programs and giving back to PTSD-afflicted veterans during private monthly events. Flight lessons and mountain soaring are available year-round to the general public. Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. To learn how you can get involved, check them out on Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook at Soaring Academy or online at SoCalSoaringAcademy.org. Bill Palmer is our first guest pilot we will hear from on this episode. Bill's soaring journey started in 1991 when his wife gave him a glider flight for his birthday. It was with the now famous Bob Wonder in Minnesota. Bill had recently qualified as an A320 captain with Northwest Airlines at the time, but had not flown gliders before nor had any exposure. He started with the 233 northeast of the Twin Cities. With the private checkride approaching squashed by winter, he picked up the following May as Minnesota melted and decided to simply push for the commercial, which he then completed. He continued to fly with the Minnesota Soaring Club in 1995, where he flew an ASK-21, ASK-7, K-8, and an SGS-123. Some pilots would do cross-country trips with their own gliders, mostly down with dashes, with the crew to follow in a trailer. Not having access to a crew, Bill put that out of his mind and enjoyed taking friends for rides and working through the A through bronze badges. He completed the silver 5-hour duration and 1,000-meter gain flights. Bill would have to wait 23 years to complete the silver distance. Bill moved to San Diego, California in 1995 and didn't seek out soaring there until 2012. After a couple moves, he realized that sky sailing was only about 40 minutes away. 
He checked out in their Grove 103, 102, and SGS 126 and 136 and had a fun time being able to climb to 12,000 feet and play the How Long Can I Stay Up game while stretching his goals all within the gliding distance of the airport. Bill is also the author of the book Understanding Air France 447. It's about an A330 that crashed into the Atlantic north of Brazil in 2012. His soaring goals are to learn to use the water ballast in his ASG-29 for longer and faster cross-country flights and hopefully a 750K. Bill also wants to continue to share his enthusiasm to current and future soaring pilots to fan their aviation flames and ambitions. We also have a very special tips and techniques segment for you on this episode. Eric Carden has an exciting journey ahead of him this coming summer as he attempts to cross the entire United States in a glider. Eric started flying hang gliders in 1993 while a sophomore in college. He briefly flew paragliders and started flying sailplanes in 2015. He also owned and operated a powered ultralight business for several years, flying and teaching in weight shift and three-axis aircraft. He has taught others how to fly hang gliders and powered ultralights. In 2011, he started giving beginner to advanced coaching of paraglider, hang glider, and sailplane pilots in thermaling and cross-country flying. He has created a free online course helping others have more fun soaring. To pay for his fun, he works as a mechanical aerospace engineer. For our soaring safety segment, we go back to Oshkosh 2019, where we interviewed Riley Spidell live on location under the wing of her aircraft for the 50th anniversary celebration. All this and more now on Soaring the Sky. Bill Palmer, welcome to Soaring the Sky. I'm excited to speak with you today. How are you? I'm great, Chuck. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. Absolutely. So before we get into the meat of the interview, I always like to start off asking guests how their aviation journey got started. Well, I'm a child of the space age. I was born within a few days of uh, Sputnik being launched. And uh, so, you know, always looked up and uh, wanted to be an astronaut. Uh, my father and aunt took flying lessons and, uh, you know, I was interested in that. And my dad gave me a flying lesson for my 15th, my well, my 16th birthday at 15 and a half. So I was able to solo on my 16th birthday and get my private about a few days after my 17th. Um, so I went to uh, Embry-Riddle, uh, instructed, hauled canceled checks, some uh, you know flew for a commuter, Northwest, and then Delta, which I just retired from. Uh, pretty much been instructing almost nonstop since about 1978 in both airplanes and simulators. I've written a lot of training material, was lead author on three systems manual for the airlines and a couple of Airbus books on my own. Uh, like I said, I just retired and uh, want to spend some time soaring and uh, teaching and promoting soaring. So here I am. Wow. You have done a lot of flying. Your whole life is literally aviation. Yeah. That, that's awesome. Before we get further into the interview and in the interest of getting to know you, we recently added a new segment. It's our lightning round segment. So I ask 20 or so rapid fire questions and you can choose from the options I give you or you can say pass and go to the next question. So what do you think, Bill? Are you up for it? Okay, fair enough. Let's go. All right. If you're looking for good lift, you'd rather follow a raven, a vulture, a hawk or an eagle. Well, there's a lot of hawks around where I go. So wherever the birds are, it's usually pretty good. I'm not uh, too discriminant about the uh, which birds to follow. I'm happy to find any bird. So 
I'll take what I can find. SkySight or XC Skies? I've used both. I'm currently on uh, SkySight, though. Flaps or no flaps? Flaps. Wave or convergence? Ooh, both. Uh, convergence uh, is... Uh, that's our primary means of going cross-country around here, so uh, I'll go with that. Bucket hat, cap, bandana, or stocking cap? Well, I have kind of a modified baseball cap with a uh, sunshade veil that hangs around it. No button on top, though. But I do sometimes wear a uh, kind of a bucket hat, kind of like an old sailor's hat with the brim pulled down. So any of the above. Long pants or shorts? Mostly long. Shoes, boots, or barefoot? Shoes, uh, except when it's going to be really cold, I have a pair of uh, mucklucks that I wear to keep my feet warm. Water bottle or camelback? I'm mostly camelback when I'm in my own glider. Garmin inReach, Spot or ELT? I have an inReach. 15 meter or 18 meter? I currently have an 18 meter, and but I loved my 15 meter as well. Metal gliders or wooden gliders? I uh, can't say that I've flown any wooden gliders, so uh, I'll take metal. Ah, gotcha. Gear brake on the flap handle or on the stick? You know, either one as long as I can remember where it is. <laughs> Vario sound in sync or quiet? Uh, sound on. Polarized sunglasses or non-polarized? Uh, polarized are good, but uh, then I can't read some of my LCD instruments, so usually I go with uh, non-polarized. Spoilers on turn to final, open or closed? Uh, usually open. Paper checklist or mnemonic? Uh, paper checklist. Airline habits. Gotcha. Parachute for pattern flights, yes or no? For pattern flights? Yes. Uh, depends on what I'm flying. If I'm in a rental, then uh, no. If I'm in my own glider, I just always wear a parachute because that is my cushion. So you land out. Who do you call, spouse or your gliding buddies? Well, my gliding buddies are the only ones who are going to get me home. So, yeah. Last time you looked at the compass. <laughs> it's been a while. <laughs> Mechanical Vario or electronic only? Uh, well, I have both. So uh, electronic primarily. Good to have a mechanical backup. P-tube, P-bag, or diaper? Well, I've never had to use any of them. But uh, currently a diaper, however, uh, the, I know that the guy who previously owned my glider used a P-tube, and now I have to replace some rudder parts because they uh, got kind of corroded, so. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> Landing on nice dirt, smooth grass, or pavement? Any of the above doesn't really matter. Whatever's there. Canopy that opens toward the front or canopy opens to the side? Uh, to the front. Tie down for the night or stuff into the trailer every time, no matter what? I'll tie down if I am uh, especially want to be out in the next morning. Gatorade or water in summer flights? Uh, mostly water. Favorite single instrument in the cockpit? <laughs> uh, my Udi. Uh, gotcha, nice. Tinted canopy or clear? Pass. Okay, I got one more for you, Bill. Steak or tofu? Prefer chicken, but uh, steak. 
<laughs> okay. Thank you. That was fun. I appreciate that. You're, you're a good sport. I know from our pre-interview chat and from looking over your Instagram post, you bagged a few new badges with some pretty long flights recently. Maybe you could spend a few minutes to share with us your journey with cross-country flights out west and maybe some lessons you've learned or some other takeaways that other pilots can benefit from those soaring. Well, let me give you a little background. It was, I was originally in a soaring club in Minnesota, uh, and uh, mostly cross-country there mean, meant uh, having to have a crew, and I didn't, and the club didn't really seem to encourage much in the way of cross-country. You know, it was mostly uh, fly for an hour, get it back so everybody else can have a turn. Uh, but I did uh, get a bronze badge there. Uh, when I moved to California, you know, I didn't even realize cross-country was going on and uh, mostly played the how long can you keep it up game. You know, and then uh, I knew Garrett Willett, who runs uh, Sky Sailing, he, that he flew down to the border that's about 50 miles away. And I, I thought that was like, that's like crazy. You know, that's magic. And uh, he said, oh, no, the, all those other gliders over there, that's where they're going. And so he showed me some of the OLC traces and it was like, wow, I had no idea. So, uh, yeah, started to work on being able to go farther and uh, got up my silver badge. Uh, almost had that. Uh, and then I bought uh, my LS3, which had a little better performance uh, that could go more than the rental ships. Uh, so I was able to get my uh, silver. Um, I got my diamond altitude at uh, Wave Camp in Minden. Uh, I did my gold uh, distance uh, here in Southern California and my diamond goal at the cross country camp uh, by uh, air sailing up near Reno also. And then I finished my diamond distance by carefully folding the 500 kilometers into our soaring area bounded by desert and country borders and huge areas with, with no lift. Uh, that's, that's a, you know, a good, a good tale as to uh, how to get that done. Anyway, so, you know, the lessons learned along the way of, you know, my silver distance uh, was just after they changed the rules that it had to be 50 kilometers from the release point and the airport. So when I sent in the claim, uh, the badge and record guy, Roland Hassas, was like, you know, I'm just not seeing 50 kilometers from the airport. And we were like, what? Oh, no. <laughs> so I had to do over. <laughs> And I uh, was able to redo the flight in my LS3. By then, I had it and uh, ended up doing, you know, double what I needed to do. Uh, for my goal distance, which can be combined with the diamond goal as a 300-kilometer uh, either, you know, task. It can be a, a declared uh, triangle or out and back, you know, with a declared finish and start point. And... Um, so being an airline pilot, I kind of like to work in knots and nautical miles. So converted it to nautical miles, made my plan, flew the task. And then I looked at it closely afterward and, you know, I hadn't done the conversion exactly because I had a 169 nautical mile task, but I think 300 kilometers is 169 point something. So I missed it by about a half a mile. Um, I was able to get the uh, the gold distance out of it because there you can declare the start and finish points. So you have some flexibility there. So I was able to, to do that. But uh, 
but the diamond uh, goal had to wait in a little while until I went to uh, cross country camp. So the, the moral was uh, be very, very careful when you measure and plan well and know the rules so that you don't uh, end up being short by half a mile or missing the a start gate by having one that's too wide or something, or there's a lot of little stuff in there that looks kind of confusing at first, but it's pretty important when the badge and record guy is going to go over and actually check for all those things and close enough isn't good enough. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, also in our pre-interview, I recall you had a good instructor story to share, sort of a Lion King circle of life type story. Can you share that one? Oh yeah, sure. So uh, I was instructing at a little grass field in New Jersey uh, in my junior year of college. I just got my CFI. And uh, so this was the field that, that I learned to fly at, you know, as a 20-something. And um, so I had a 16-year-old student that I had soloed that summer. And 40 years later, I got to fly with him and finish his qualification in the Airbus A350. So that was really pretty cool wow. to uh, be able to fly together and kind of say, yeah, one of them worked out, you know, um, and uh, we're good friends as well. So he had a career in the Air Force and then, uh, you know, ended up uh, working for the same airline and was like, wow, hey, I want that student for, for his, uh, his OE, which is his final uh, checkout in the airplane. Oh, it, was, awesome. it was really great. Yeah. That is very cool. You'd also mentioned that you're the author of the book, Understanding Air France 447. Um, that was about an incident that happened back in 2012. Maybe you could share with us a little bit about what inspired you to write the book and what lessons we can learn as glider pilots, as well as pilots in general, for that matter. Yeah, so I was an A330 instructor at the time. And, uh, you know, we were all kind of annoyed that the crew crashed a perfectly flyable airplane. Um, you know, like, how, what the heck, you know, uh, it, it kind of made us mad. And, uh, there was also a lot of misinformation online and in various chat rooms and stuff about, you know, how the A330 worked and they're blaming the airplane and saying it broke up in the air and a lot of things that just weren't true. Um, but I also thought it had lessons to learn about flight control laws, the, the weather, especially where it happened at. Uh, aerodynamics, the autoflight systems, and, and the like. And I mostly wrote it for other pilots and then expanded it for a, any aviation enthusiast uh, audience. So I think the big lessons were, especially for airplanes where the autopilot is on uh, a lot of the time, that you have to be able to fly the airplane and perform when you might not expect it. So you got to be able to fly the plane. Even when it's dark and there's and you're it's bumpy and the alarms are going off and the auto flight systems aren't working, um, you know. So training matters, and competence matters is kind of the big underlying thing. You have to you're gonna when the chips are down, you're gonna fall back on your instincts on your training, and that has to be there. You know, if it's not, then you're gonna be in trouble. So in the end, they just didn't fly the airplane. They were trying to find out what was wrong. Uh, yeah, it, it's a, an interesting story. Basically, uh, the autopilot clicked off, and uh, they didn't 
weren't able to maintain straight and level for the minute that it took the pitot tubes to become unclogged. And during that time, they climbed 3,000 feet, lost 100 knots, and then three minutes wow. later, they were in the water. Fast. Yeah. yeah wow. Everything happened really fast. And now a word about our recently added new sponsor, Just Soaring. These guys are doing an all-new glider simulator cockpit for you Condor pilots out there that I think you're really going to be excited about. This sim rig was designed from the ground up with glider flight controls like flaps that have multi-position detents, a spring-loaded spoiler mechanism, landing gear lever, and flight controls laid out where you expect them to be in your cockpit. Built with super strong 8020 T-slot aluminum, which will not only hold up well, but will also allow for accessorization and customization over time. Designed by Glider Pilots for Glider Pilots, their mission is to design, engineer, and globally distribute a truly best-in-class, very affordable performance glider sim cockpit. They plan to start taking pre-orders sometime in the next couple months, and they are looking at first shipments to be in spring of 2021. And yes, while they are a U.S. company, they plan to have warehousing in Europe to support that market as well. If you are thinking about upgrading your Condor cockpit, you might want to check these guys out first at JustSoaring.com or at Just.Soaring on Instagram. You can reach out to them via their website with any questions. And thanks again to Just Soaring for supporting the show. If you like to be a sponsor or know someone that might, please drop us a line. Could you maybe tell us a little bit about your pre-flight routine, both before you pull your glider out onto the line or while you're in the cockpit getting ready to take off? Is there anything that maybe you do differently that some pilots commonly don't do that you think maybe they should do? Um, well, I'll start basically the night before, you know, looking at sky sight and, uh, and any task, you know, get it loaded onto my UDI, kind of plan where I can go based on, uh, what the forecast is, um, and load those, you know, onto my, my UDI, maybe in the, in the morning before I go, you know, just evaluate what's, what's looked like it's going to be possible. Uh, they have a nice uh, route forecast that gives you, you know, for the route, allows you to see kind of when the day is going to die so that you're not, you know, 100 kilometers away at the time when things are kind of collapsing to kind of figure out, okay, it's three o'clock. Is it safe to still go there or, or you know, whatever what kind of, you know, timing, timing is everything on that. Um, so with the weather and the route, you know, evaluated, turn points adjusted for the forecast, may have to move them a little one way or the other, depending on where the convergence line is forecast to be at that time of day. For once I'm out to the glider port, you know, it's try to assemble in exactly the same order every time, right wing, left wing, wing tips, tail, etc. you know, kind of undisturbed, not with uh, any chats going on or whatever. Um, I do use a paper checklist before takeoff. Um, some of that has lessons learned, like make sure the Austrian isn't stuck in the canopy and make sure the flight recorder's on and make sure, you know, all these things that are beyond the normal A, B, C, C, triple D, E uh, checklist um, that, uh, you know, have learned over time. And I pretty much always use supplemental oxygen uh, for most flights, um, I mean, our ground is at 3,000 feet, more often above 10, sometimes up to 17. So, you know, I, I'll set it so that it comes on around five. You know, I use a 
mountain high system, so it doesn't use much oxygen at all, really. And uh, it's just a good thing to have on all the time and not have to worry about, oh man, now I'm going to go high. Uh, I have to try to find the oxygen to get it turned on. So pretty much always use it. Uh, speaking of uh, the cockpit, can you tell us a little bit about your cockpit setup and what tools you use for cross country and maybe what evolved over time as you gained experience and exposure to some new gadgets? The market seems to be divided between built-in solutions like ClearNav or then you have some of the more recent Bluetooth-enabled all-in-one instruments that pilots are putting on their tablets, uh, their phones, that they mount in their cockpits. I'm interested in your thoughts on the various solutions out there and maybe your specific setup and how you got there and what you like about your setup. Well, I really started cross-country flying in my LS3, which um, I when I got it, I put a new panel in, and the main instrument was uh, an LXNAV uh, S80 Vario which has a moving map and a floor display and, you know, a, a half a dozen different screens that you can switch from more if you, if you expand off of those. It, it's not an IGC recorder. So I did get an, an UDI uh, IGC to supplement that and, and use them together. Um, the S80, you know, I had to switch between screens to see Flarm or to see the task or to see other uh, air stuff. So um, I had a, the UDI set up, so some of my critical data is on there. For example, I use the lift, the the L over D required to the target. You know where the nearest airport is, what L over D I need to get there, and my current L over D, and, and some other parameters as well, ground speed, uh, etc. So that that's running on the side uh, by itself. I, I like the Florham display and. Uh, where we fly, there's arrivals into San Diego. So we, I know where the arrival routes are and have them marked on my map. So I'll crank up the distance on the Florham to see when the 737s are coming, uh, you know, 20, 30 miles away, not just wait for something to be five miles away. Um, and so, you know, we have the points on the map and I know what the crossing altitudes for the arrivals are. So we're real careful in that area and we'll sometimes talk to ATC as we cross there. What has evolved is the safety margin. You know, originally I wouldn't go beyond a 15 to one to, uh, you know, an alternate, which was mostly home with, with the Grobe uh, 102. And then, you know, with my LS3 and as my experience improved and my confidence improved, you know, I worked that up to 20 or 25 to one, depending on the conditions uh, in the wind and whether it's clouds or it's blue day or whether it's rocky or which way I'm going. Uh, currently, I have a, a ClearNav 2 in my uh, ASG 29. I'm getting used to that. haven't had it all that long, but I do also in parallel have a UDI, and that displays SkySight, which the ClearNav does not. And uh, also use that for a secondary McCready. For example, I can set that at 5 for you know, a, a final glide to get home. So there's quite a bit of safety margin built into that. While I might use a, a lower McCready um, on the clear nav for speed to fly as the thing goes along. Um, I do highly encourage uh, transponders and ADS-B and Flarm. Um, I, I have it in, in the both gliders that I've owned. And, um, you know, one day I was out flying wave in a rental ship you know, no electronic anything. So it was basically a stealth uh, glider. 
And uh, coming back around 10,000 feet, you know, boom, under me comes this uh, marine osprey. Oh, my. You know, I have no idea if you saw me or not, but it was like, holy smokes. Yeah. That could have been bad. So, yeah, I really, I want to be seen. And even though it's not required, it's still a really, really good idea. Absolutely. Can you tell me about the glider port you fly out of most often? Uh, is it pavement, grass, dirt, big runway? What kind of tow planes also? Well, the probably above. Uh, Warner Springs is uh, in Southern California in the northern part of San Diego County, uh, kind of out in the boonie area there. It's got a 3,500-foot paved runway that we use for takeoff. Um, there's an adjacent dirt area that's about 200 feet wide or so. We always take off to the west due to rough terrain just to the east. So we might take off to the west and land to the east if, if the wind is from the east. Um, we use um, a, a call air for a tow plane that's an ag plane, not unlike a pointy, and a couple of super cubs. Nice. The area is a, it's a pretty wide basin surrounded by mountains. Uh, the famous Mount Palomar with the observatory is right there. Uh, the Anza Borrego Desert is about 15 miles to the east and about 2,500 feet lower. And there's a couple alternate airports down there. That drop-off with some mountains along the edge also provides great conditions for uh, for wave flights, uh, you know, especially in the wintertime. You know, this, this time of year, um, we get some pretty good flights uh, off of that. It's just outside the San Diego Mode C Vail from their Class B airspace. So there's not much other air traffic right in that basin. So it's a really great area for, for gliders and learning to fly and not having to have a lot of other interference with having to talk to ATC or anybody else. Uh, we've got pretty good thermal conditions. There's uh, over the mountains, there's some mountain flying. There's uh, a little bit of ridge, but it's mostly around one peak. We can't really go anywhere on the ridge. There are very few land out spots, though, that are not airports. So we have to be pretty conservative uh, for that. Um, but the thermals can be really great uh, over the mountains, often well above 10,000 feet. Nice. Uh, or more. So, yeah. So, Bill, speaking of glider ports, do you have any locations on your bucket list that maybe you'd like to fly someday? Well, let's say uh, I've flown in Minnesota and at Reno, both in Minden and air sailing. Those are both, you know, fantastic. Uh, glider places, and uh, also flown in uh, Chihalui in uh, Tennessee with uh, Sarah Arnold's uh, operation, a great little little field. Uh, interesting to see uh, how the clouds perform differently when it's really, really humid uh, versus in the dry air of the desert southwest. Uh, but I'd like to try to, I'd like to go on uh, some little safaris, maybe out to Moriarty in New Mexico or Nephi in Utah, Williams and, uh, you know, maybe someday to New Zealand or South of France or something. We're working on it. Yeah. And New Zealand's a uh, popular answer to that question. Yeah. Under <laughs> well, I see understandable. why. Yeah. <laughs> so if somebody gave you 300 grand and you could only spend it on a glider, all right? All right. What would you buy and, and why? I would, um, well, you know, I just bought an ASG 29, so I'm not listening out there anything prettier right now. Uh, but if you gave me that and made me made me spend it, uh, maybe uh, like a two place uh, cross country ship, like a duo discus or something, to be able to share, yeah, uh, better. Yeah, absolutely. So, is there a particular mentor figure or an instructor in your soaring history that 
particularly stands out? Maybe you can share some thoughts on that. Well, primarily, uh, Bob Wander, he um, gave me my initial ratings. You know, he's my instructor. Oh, very cool. Uh, of course, he's a great author. Got a whole couple series of books. I have, uh, I run his website and have since pretty much the dawn of the internet. And uh, so he's a, a good friend. And uh, Garrett Willett, who um, flies here at the Sky Sailing, you know, the, his family runs the place and he's just a fountain of knowledge and, uh, you know, a great instructor and, uh, and mechanic and uh, a wonderful resource to have around. Is there anyone else, maybe someone you've raced against, anyone else you want to give a shout out to? Well, there's lots of guys that I fly with here that inspire me to keep improving. They have many, many more hours of cross-country flight than I do. And uh, some are so incredibly good. It's like, it's like they're performing magic. So there, there's, yeah, I, I'm not going to name any particular one of them because then the others would feel left out. But uh, there's a lot of guys that, that I look up to that uh, hope to learn from uh, as, we, as my adventure continues. One of the goals here on the show, of, of course, is to help grow the sport of soaring around the world. What are some things you've seen or people that you've met in the last few years that are helping to work in this direction? Do you have any suggestions for the soaring community, things that we could do better? Well, I like to um, encourage advancements in soaring. Um, encourage some of my buddies to uh, to work on their cross-country stuff and, you know, badges. Hey, let's go somewhere. Where do you want to go? You know, um, I just retired and uh, got my my CFIG about a year ago. So, you know, I want to spend some time promoting soaring and teaching and uh, just just kind of, you know, jazzing the whole thing up. Um, I'm working on some instructional videos that uh, haven't released yet, but, you know, so that maybe will help out. Um, I recently got the SSA to make badge stickers uh, available to the SSA instructors. Um, I do have made a couple on my own, but, uh, you know, so to encourage people to kind of share their achievements and maybe someone will ask, hey, what's that? And they'll say, oh, let me tell you about soaring, you know, and hopefully it'll uh, pique some interest of someone else who wasn't expecting to be piqued, you know, and, and get them out to come for a ride or something. So, yeah, absolutely. Get that conversation going. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I have, I have across the back of my car, ask me about soaring. Yeah. So I was going to say, I don't know how many times, you know, I've been asked, I have this, the, a sticker on the back saying I'd rather be soaring and people are like, so what's that about? You know, and then you get into the whole conversation. It's amazing what it brings up, but yeah. And amazing the people that even here in the United States uh, aren't familiar with soaring. So, No, a lot. I've given uh, the SSA's uh, website link with the uh, Fly a Sailplane Today link to many of my uh, flying buddies, you know, that are in the airline and, uh, and other people like, hey, yeah, it's, it's, they're around. You can do this, you know, and it's a lot of fun and it, you really learn a lot more about flying than uh, than you think you do. You know, I've had numerous opportunities in the airline where, you know, just my perception of why does that cloud look like that, you know, tells me about what the air is doing around that. Um, had a, a, a fun incident over Canada or something at, you know, 38,000 feet. And I point out these lenticulars over the mountains down below, you know, to my first officer pointed out, I took a picture. And then a few minutes later, you know, as we approach that area, it starts getting bumpy. And I said, ask for an offset, you know, three miles to the right upwind. Okay. 
And uh, as soon as we offset, you know, it smoothed out. And it was like, how did you do that? What? <laughs> you know, and it was like, well, I know <laughs> from the lenticulars that this is wave and it'll propagate all the way up, you know, beyond the tropopause. So that was probably the cause of it. And it wasn't going to be upwind of the mountains. So just, just that soaring knowledge just, you know, made my whole aviation knowledge, you know, that much more complete. Um, and I, I think it's, you know, it's just made me a better pilot. Yeah, I was going to ask you, as far as being an airline pilot, I'm sure there's been things that you've learned in soaring. You've just kind of described that to help you. Right. And of course, you know, all, all the famous uh, dual engine out uh, save it's like, you know, the Miracle on the Hudson, the Gimli Glider, the Air Transat that glided into uh, the Azores. Those were all glider pilots um, that saved the day. So yeah, it makes, makes a big difference. You never know when it's going to come in handy. Absolutely. And I've done a bunch of uh, dual engine out in a simulator just for fun. Hey, shut them both off. Let's make the airport. Let's put it on the numbers. So how does that go usually? Oh, yeah, it's fun. <laughs> so after, after our recurrent training uh session or whatever i'd say hey let's do this you know let's see what you can do and uh right yeah it's interesting to see uh how people uh think another way to bring up the the gliders right absolutely absolutely yeah it's uh everybody knows i'm a glider pilot <laughs> i don't make it a secret right <laughs> Bill, thanks so much for spending your time today and joining us here on the podcast. I've enjoyed talking to you. Thank you, Chuck. It's been a pleasure. It's been a lot of fun. And keep up the good work. Um, it sounds like you're doing a lot to spread the sport of soaring. Yeah, hopefully you'll hear of me some more. I think we'll have you back. Absolutely. Oh, great. Love, looking forward to it. We now join Dale Masters, author and glider pilot, on Soaring Tales with Dale, and this one is another story about soaring in wave. Now here's another wave story, and I need to explain what we call bow wave. This is not a scientific term, and frankly, I've never seen any scientific uh, discussion of any kind, or technical discussion of what, what this is, but it's wave upwind of the mountain. Now, all glider pilots know that classic wave forms downwind, but at our place, fairly often, if we have the wind going the opposite direction, the wave will form upwind of the hill like, uh, like air piling up before it gets over the top. And it forms a lot like a surf, where the wave begins to form far away and it, it grows as it approaches the mountain. And then when it finally gets to the, the source of, of all this disturbance, it crashes just like a surf will crash on the beach. And so uh, this type of wave is not usually, as, as, it's never as strong as classic wave, but it's real wave for it's very, very smooth. And you, you, uh, it stays where it is, but it tends to migrate downwind, which classic wave does not. And all that is a setup for what's about to happen here. It's a very strong wind day, and we're sitting upwind of our local hill in this wave, probably well, a few hundred feet higher than the crest of the hill and a few hundred feet upwind of it, facing away, facing into the wind, and our wave suddenly collapsed, as we knew it would. And moments before that, it felt to me like idling in a motorboat 
at the cusp of Niagara, just, you know, facing upstream and just hovering there in the river and not going backwards over the top. That's how it felt. And then suddenly the wave crashed. So I learned a major lesson here. Just moments earlier, we had established 45 knots indicated, kept us in exactly one spot. So we were hovering, not going up or down, or not going forward or back, at 45 knots indicated, at 9,000 feet, which is 52 knots indicated true, which in miles per hour is 63 miles per hour. That was the ambient wind where we were, was 63 miles an hour, perfectly smooth. But then as we, as the wave crashed, we'd be into nose over to go faster, we begin to go backwards. Because imagine now, if there's no hill, you're just flying in a 60 knot wind, if you or a 60 mile an hour wind. If you if you were to go straight down, you'd be moving backwards at 60, which we were for a few seconds. So as we lowered the nose to gain speed and get out of trouble, we watched ahead of us down the nose. We watched the hill move from behind us to ahead of us. We were actually going backwards as we dove for airspeed. The lesson I learned there was if you have a very strong wind aloft, you need to have at least that much airspeed or you cannot go upwind without going the wrong direction. Hello, Eric. Hi, Chuck. Welcome to Soaring the Sky. Thank you. Good to be here. You know, I knew your name looked familiar when I first heard about your upcoming journey, and then I finally put it all together. You've done a bunch of talks and webinars around the country about thermaling and some other soaring techniques. I think I listened to a couple of them on SSA's website back in the day, but yeah, welcome. I've done a few. Yeah, thank you. I really enjoy doing that. Thanks for having me. It's always fun to talk about soaring. Absolutely. So before we jump into your upcoming cross-country journey... How about you first just give our listeners a little background on yourself and how you got into aviation and specifically, of course, sailplanes and soaring? Sure. I've always been fascinated with flying since I was a kid and played with all sorts of airplane toys, had uh, version one or two of Microsoft Flight Simulator on a Commodore 64 in 1984-ish. My first real flying was hang gliding in 93 so coming up on 28 years ago this fall, I flew hang gliders for over 20 years. I briefly flew paragliders. And during the time I was flying hang gliders for a few years, I ran a powered ultralight business. Confirmed what I already knew. I didn't really care for motors. The, the challenge of soaring, you know, keeping an aircraft up in the air for hours and flying long distances, that was just a lot more compelling to me than any other type of flying. So about six years ago this spring, I switched over to sailplanes. You know, I'd reached a point in my life where I could afford that and a point in my life where the occasional rough landing with a hang glider was uh, hurting a little too much, not healing as quickly. So the idea of taking off and landing from a wheel was very appealing. And once I got into it, wow, I didn't know what, what I was in for three times the glide ratio at two and a half times the speed, that, those are real game changers. So I didn't know how good sailplane soaring was compared to hang gliding, but I knew how good soaring was. So 
it's been a great thing. I've been having a blast for five or six years, for almost 30 years, really. But the last five or six have really been fun. Oh, that is awesome. Okay, so now the part that we're all anxious to hear about, your upcoming cross-country journey. And to the listeners, you heard it right, cross the country, not cross-country. And America is a pretty big place. And according to Eric, a series of flights like this has really only been done once, and that was, I think, back in the 60s. So without further ado, Eric, please tell us all about this, starting with what was your inspiration, your motivation, and when did you first come up with this crazy idea? I think this idea first really occurred to me sometime in my first year of flying sailplanes, probably in the first year that I owned my first sailplane, which was an an LS3. And I I saw what the potential was. It it never occurred to me when flying hang gliders to do such a thing. I, I don't, I'm not sure you could make it across the country in a whole flying season. I mean, it would take, it would take months at my skill level anyway. So it was probably five years or so ago that this specific idea occurred to me. I've been enjoying cross-country flying for over 20 years. So it was just sort of a natural growth of that. After a while, you've seen most of the places you can go from your home site and get back in a day. So it's nice to go somewhere else. And instead of just going somewhere else and flying around there the whole time, I It'd be a fun way to see the country to just fly across the country, one hop at a time, never landing where you took off. So it just seemed a natural extension of the adventure of cross-country flying to go across the country. Wow. What are some areas along your planned route where you're most concerned about? I mean, of course, you're going to have terrain, typical weather, lack of landouts, maybe some bad food. (laughs) Well, uh... Hopefully we won't get into too much bad food. We'll be traveling in <laughs> in our uh, small motorhome, a 24-foot Airstream Interstate. Some people call them camper vans, the Class B motorhomes. So we'll be carrying our own groceries for the most part and cooking. And uh, So hopefully we won't get into too much bad food. But I-, I haven't flown in the southwest of the U.S. other than a hang glider flight at the uh, coast at Torrey Pines years ago, but that's nothing like what I'm doing here. So there's the unknown of the terrain. Land out options out there, I, I understand, are almost nil. And, and I'm used to the concept that what looks very smooth and landable from a few thousand feet up almost never is. So my, my plan is to try really hard to always be within glide of a known safe airstrip, not a field, not the desert, uh, an airstrip. But there are still places. I've, I've scoured the country, spent countless hours looking at the countryside, looking at airstrips, looking in areas where there are no airstrips for places that might be safely landable. And there are two or three places in the Southwest before I'll get to mid-Texas, we'll say, where there might be 80 miles between two good landing options by my definition, good by my definition. And that's going to require pretty good conditions for me to stay high enough that when I'm halfway between those two, I can reach uh, either one. And and I sort of insist on that as a, just for safety's sake. And the show is proud to announce yet another new sponsor, 
Wings and Wheels has been serving the soaring and sport aviation community for more than 30 years now. They have the largest and most comprehensive inventory of sailplanes and soaring supplies in the U.S. Nearly everything you'll find on their site is in stock and ready for same-day shipping. They are proud to be the exclusive American representative for HPH LTD, manufacturer of the finest quality sailplanes. The HPH Twin Shark is the newest 20-meter two-place sailplane on the market and arriving in North America this spring. Their staff has thousands of hours of flying experience in gliders and airplanes. Staffed by Adam, Kelly, Julie, and Sean. A friendly voice will answer when you call. Located in Eagle, Idaho, Wings and Wheels has a new commercial building with warehouse built to their specifications and completed in 2021. Whether shipping domestic or international, your soaring-related supply list is covered. Come visit them next time you are in the Boise area. Check them out at wingsandwheels.com. And through the end of May, if you use the promo code POD2021, you'll get a free 8-inch sailplane decal with your order. We're stoked to have them on board the pod and thank them for their support. For such long series of long flights, I am curious... Why are you going with a 13 and a half meter ship versus maybe a 15 or 18 meter ship that is significantly, of course, higher glide ratio? That's a good question. Yeah, my glider, I think its honest glide ratio is around 39, uh, almost what the LS3 was. Uh, It's not the 50 or so that some of these other gliders have. Uh, The reason is I didn't want to have to take a tow plane with me. And from my limited amount of research, the self-launching ability of those heavier, bigger gliders was not as good, which would have limited me on takeoff sites. I would have needed, you know, longer, smoother runways. So I, I chose, I sacrificed a little performance to get better self launch capability. So I have more freedom of choice, uh, where to land and thus where to launch. And it cuts out, I'm sure, a lot of cost and planning, too, so you don't have to worry about the tow plane. Right, right. So this, that does make it a, a little extra challenging to do this in a 13.5-meter glider. It'll make it all the more satisfying if I succeed, Wh- which, by the way, uh, priority number one here is have a good time. My wife's going with me. I still want her to uh, like me after this is over. And <laughs> yeah. and, and we have a couple more crew members that are are still – uh, in the closet, so to speak. They're not ready to announce they're coming on the trip yet, but we want to remain friends with them. So I've told all three of them, your happiness is priority number one. And if any point this becomes too much like work, we back off on the flying and we take a day or two off and just relax. Yeah, good idea. Definitely. So I think my overall, and I have a somewhat of a time crunch. Bob Fisher, 60 years ago, did this. It took him 59 days. I'm, I'm only, I'm trying to get it done in about three weeks less than that. Wow. So trying to do that and not wear out my crew, my team rather, uh, is a bit of a challenge. So I give myself only about a 30 to 50% chance of success. I'm going to try, but uh, I'm also a realist. Well, we are rooting for you and we'll be watching you every step of the way. I appreciate it. Now, looking over your website the other day, I noticed it doesn't seem like you're looking for any funding or sponsors. Are you just paying for this all out of your own pocket? Yes, sir. I, uh, I wrestled with that question. Did I want to get sponsors involved? 
And I ultimately just decided, you know, I, I can afford to do it on my own. So I preferred, I chose to not seek out sponsorship. With sponsorship can come strings and expectations. And, and even, even the kindest, most generous of sponsors, you, you would still feel you owe them something when, when they're helping fund you. So I didn't want to feel that tug or that pressure or put that pressure on the rest of my team. So we're doing it totally self-funded. Just, just a few uh, friends out having fun, flying and driving across the country. Well, this is a beautiful country, so I'm sure you will have a beautiful journey. And you being in the air, you're going to see some amazing things. I expect to. Eric, thank you so much for sharing your journey with us. This is going to be really cool to, to watch and definitely want to check back in with you and see how things are going and how your journey, how your journey is. And yeah, this it's exciting stuff. I'm looking forward to it. It's my pleasure. And I look forward to talking with you more about it. This soaring safety segment is brought to you by Aerox Aviation Oxygen Systems. Aerox, number one in portable and engineered oxygen systems. Your source for FAA-approved oxygen mask and portable oxygen systems. Aerox now introduces the Aerox Pro 2 Plus Flight Bag Portable Oxygen System. Small, lightweight, and simple to use. The Pro 2 Plus is perfect for the occasional user who wants the flexibility to access higher altitudes without worry about flying impaired. Now available at Aerox Distributors and at Aerox.com. Aerox, engineered for aviators. Well, I think like as soon as you start feeling like uncomfortable with the situation, like kind of find a like what like just kind of figure out what's making you uncomfortable about it. What like what is the thing that you can do to change that like if you're landing and the plane's not feeling right like or like or like the glider's not feeling right right then just kind of what's making it not feel like are you accidentally landing downwind are you do you have it's like the flap setting off or you have the air brakes are doing something funky so kind of find with that and then try to help like be observant of what your plane's doing basically if you want to hear the rest of our interview with Riley Spidell, it's episode 24. It's the Oshkosh 2019. We recorded that live, so check that out. Thanks again for joining us here on Soaring the Sky. Until next time, stay healthy, stay safe, and happy soaring. If you would like to say hi and let us know where you are enjoying the podcast, we would love to hear from you. If you are a glider pilot and want to share your aviation journey, Contact us at chuck at soaringthesky.com or send us a message on our website at soaringthesky.com and Chuck will get in touch with you. We hope you join us next time for another soaring adventure here on Soaring the Sky, a Glider Pilots podcast. Soaring the Sky is written and produced by Chuck Fulton, co-producer Mitch Thompson. Original music for the podcast was written and produced by Kim Spangler. Graphic design for the podcast was created by Zachary Fulton. Voiceover work was done by Michelle Perez.